good morning. It's, it's been five years since I've been here, so it's good to see everybody again. Some new faces I hope to get to talk to and meet. Uh, let's, let's begin with the word of prayer, and then I'll dive into this presentation. Father, I'm so thankful for your son. I'm thankful for the gospel, and we are thankful uh, for your word. Uh, thankful for the purity and the, the uh, wonderful, wonderful purity of the scriptures. Thank you that we get to take this gospel to places that have not yet heard uh, about your son and the forgiveness through sins. So I pray that you would uh, raise up more workers, even from this congregation, and I pray that you would thrust more out into the unreached peoples. Uh, help me as I speak. May you guide my tongue, and may this be glorifying to your name. In Christ's name, amen. Well, thank you. Well, again, my name is Paul Snyder. For those that you have not met me before, uh, I want to thank you so much to, to Northwest for the years of, of prayer and support to keep us on the field. You know, this is not just about Paul and Trish Snyder. This is about Northwest, the extension. You are a part of that ministry on the field because you are keeping us, allowing us to work there by your prayer and support uh, through these last many years. I mean, uh, since 2009 when we began this. So I want to thank you for your prayers. Uh, We came back from furlough in July, or in June, the end of June. And as you read on my updates, uh, two days after back uh, in the States in Minnesota where our sending church is, uh, I started having a high fever with with all of my joints, felt like they were going to fall apart. And so my wife took me to the hospital, and it was confirmed that I had chikungunya, a mosquito-borne virus. Uh, I've had malaria three times, dengue fever once. And we thought this was dengue fever again, but it ended up being chikungunya virus, which means in the African language to stoop over because you're in such pain in your joints. And so I spent a week in the hospital in Minneapolis. And uh, two days after I got out of the hospital with chikungunya, I started having tingling and numbness in my toes and fingers and in my tongue. I just thought it was a side effect of the chikungunya because that's been reported before. It went on for two weeks and began to progress and progress until uh, my whole body became paralyzed and all my nerves were exposed and I couldn't even open up a, a cap on a, I couldn't even pull a, a, a toothpaste cap open. I lost all muscle function, lost all nerve function, and then it moved up my body into my face, my face paralyzed, and then my throat could not swallow. So my wife rushed me to the ER and I spent uh, several weeks in the hospital there. And it was confirmed that I had Guillain-Barre syndrome, which was brought on by the chikungunya. Uh, I spent time getting the treatments for Guillain-Barre. And during that time, you were praying for us uh, through the chikungunya. And then, of course, with the Guillain-Barre, you were praying for, our recover- for my recovery. Uh, I was able to walk out of the hospital. Most Guillain-Barre patients that the doctors know of could not walk out of the hospital at least for six to, months to a year. Now, I was able to walk out, barely, but I was determined to walk out of there. But it wasn't my doing. It was the Holy Spirit. The doctors were just amazed. How could this be? So I got to share with them, hey, this is through the prayers of the saints, through the supporting churches that support us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is only possible through Him. And so I was able to walk out of there and been recovering ever since, ever since then, since July. And now this is, I think, my third, maybe my second or third travel 
across the U.S. now that I've had the energy and been able to speak. I couldn't speak for uh, quite a while, just had no function. And so I did my occupational therapy, my uh, physical therapy for several months, and that helped bring back all the functions. So uh, if I can, I can grin to you now. So if I don't smile much, I'm not a mad missionary. So <laughs> I'm a happy missionary. I'm excited to, to be with you and, and to serve Christ in the most remote part of the world, but also to come and share what God is doing and some of the struggles that we've had that you can pray for. So my goal in this presentation this morning is to, to, to really give a report as to what God has been doing in the village and to show uh, everyday life there. You know, my wife Trish and my um, daughter Marianne, my son Lane, they're in North Carolina right now. Uh, they wanted to be here, but it's really difficult to travel a lot of the times across the U.S., especially since my son is behind in homeschooling and my daughter is too due to sickness. So just pray for my family. It's, uh, we're, our target date is to go back in May. The job is not done for what Christ gave us to do in the world. And so therefore, we must continue. And so I'm very thankful that he's given me the energy to do that and the ability to return. And just pray Luke 10 that Christ would raise up more laborers, send out more laborers into the field. This is one of the fields that I'm passionate about because we need more workers. And so this is Papua, Indonesia, right above Australia. It's governed by Indonesia. Uh, the, let's see if I can get this working here. There we go. I serve in the, the lowland swamps of Papua Indonesia. The Korowai tribe are right below this mountain range that spans across Papua. As soon as we cross this highland mountain range of 15,000 feet of mountains, you hit lowland swamps all the way to Australia, or the end of Papua. The Korowai tribe are right smack down in the middle of Papua, in one of the most remote jungles. And so the gospel came to this area through World War II. After World War II was over, or during World War II, the planes were flying over uh, Papua to go to the Japanese islands and the Philippine islands, and they were seeing that there were highland people living in this mountain range. So that opened the gospel advance for the 50s and 60s. The gospel came to these highland people in the 60s. So now what we do is we work with these highland Christians the, that are involved with the National Church of Papua, and they are also our teammates and what we're trying to do is saturate this lowland area with the gospel. So you have different religions coming from the, the north and coming from the south trying to saturate this area, and we're trying to get there before all those others reach that area. Indonesia is about the size of the U.S., the same amount of people, uh, 300 million people. Uh, it's the same width as the United States from L.A. to all the way up to New York area. Uh, and... It is made up of about 17,500 islands. Uh, 6,000 of those are inhabited, so a lot of islands don't have people. Many, many people groups, over 700 people groups, 700 languages uh, in, this, in this country. Sumatra, one of the most unreached Muslim islands in the world. The most unreached Muslim island in the world. So from Aceh all the way down to Merauke is the country of Indonesia. You know Trevor Johnson, my partner. He works with me. We work together in the Korowai tribe. He is now not in Indonesia. He's up in Malaysia recovering, so please continue to pray for him. Uh, it's, it's not likely that he'll be back this year. Pray that he, they can return next year. He's also been suffering from multiple bouts of malaria, 
and now his liver and spleen are swollen. Uh, he's got uh, a lot of blood issues, mercury, copper, iron, uh, aluminum in his blood. So please pray for him as he recovers in Malaysia. This is my family. Some of you already met them before several years ago. My wife, Trish, my son, Lane, and my daughter, Marianne. Uh, I praise God for a wife like this. I'm only standing here because of my wife. She is a great partner in the ministry, and I praise God for her. This is taken down in the village in the lowland swamps this past year before we left, before we came back from furlough. Lane is, Lane is now in uh, ninth grade, and Marianne is in fifth grade. And so we're homeschooling them, and hopefully we can uh, continue their homeschooling uh, while we're traveling some. And, but the reason they couldn't come with me today is because they were behind in homeschool. So please pray for them. We're sent out by Bethany Bible Church in Big Lake, Minnesota. Uh, we've been uh, also affiliated with Heart Cry Missionary Society. We joined Heart Cry Missionary Society in 2014, uh, and we're not sent out by Heart Cry. But what that is, we provide the theological education for the heart cry missionaries on the field there, the Papuan heart cry missionaries. So we're partnering with heart cry to teach these men, because if my help fails, these men are going to outlast us. They're going to be the ones that are going to be there when Trevor and I are gone. So we are not content just to bypass the local church. We want to do 2 Timothy 2.2, teach others to teach others, those generational teaching there. And so that's what we're doing with Heart Cry. We're focusing on discipleship. We're focusing on theological education for these men to prepare them for the ministry. And you'll get to meet some of these guys in just a few minutes. This is our village of Danawage. Uh, this was taken just uh, last year. And uh, this is the missionary area with the school and the clinic. Uh, everything was cut out by hand with the machete and with dug out with shovel. So Trevor's house, my house... We now have a clinic on site, uh, and we built a school through your help and support through the years. We were able to finish the school, and you get to meet some of our new teachers. And then, of course, you have the Korowai uh, housing along the outside here with multiple treehouse, treehouses still existing around the village. So homeschooling in the jungle can be a challenge. Uh, it's, uh, it's not easy, especially when you have people at your door 24-7. This kind of ministry, if you want to do tribal missions, it's a 24-7 job. You never get a day off in the village. It can be a challenge. Sometimes you don't see, in the pictures, you don't see the sweat dripping off the arms onto the pages due to the 100% humidity. But Lane and Marianne, it's, you know, this is a really good place to raise your children. This is a really good area to raise your children because your children get to be involved in the ministry. They get to help mom and dad. They get to see mom and dad in action for the gospel. And so I'm really thankful for my children that they get to grow up in this area. Lane's in ninth grade, Marion's in fifth, and Trish does a great job at teaching our children. You can pray for my daughter. She has now been um, diagnosed with dyslexia and misophobia this just a few weeks ago. And so we are going to make plans to help her with her dyslexia so we can return and, and get her the help she needs during her homeschooling. Great place to raise your children. I mean, Marianne's always wanting to catch her bugs and snakes. Of course, you've got to teach her which ones to catch. <laughs> Some of those you don't want to pick up. Uh, they get to come with me and they get to help mom in medical. They get to come with me when I do teaching in medical. 
Uh, you can see Lane down at the bottom uh, with the heli. We're headed down to a southern village, and he gets to help me uh, do measles vaccines and do some help me with the teaching. So it's just really a great opportunity for your children to be involved. Don't want to bypass that. We want to allow them the opportunity to grow in their faith and, and help with the ministry as well. Usually it's hard to get family time in a village like this. The people, they're always around you. Uh, in tribal ministry, it's, it's 24-7. You're never alone. So a lot of times my children will say, can we just go off by ourselves and have family time? So we try to hit the river or the airstrip, the paved airstrip, either riding bikes or swimming in the river. Uh, because it's so hot, sometimes we're down the river several times a day. But usually what happens is the tribal people try to follow you. And then my children are like, Daddy, please, can it just be us? And I said, well, son, and uh, Marianne, I can't tell them to go away because we're guests here. I mean, we have to, you know, we're living here uh, as guests, so we have to be sensitive to that. So a lot of times it's, it's difficult to have family time uh, alone, but this is what we're usually doing as a family, uh, having fun time at the river or riding bikes at the airstrip. This is our new airstrip that was opened in 2016. It was, someone was mentioning earlier about a pilot, my last presentation, five or six years ago, uh, by the name of Kevin Lynn, when we had a gravel airstrip. Well, he did come and checked out the airstrip, but now what's happened is the Indonesian government has funded for a paved airstrip, 1,600 meters. And so they've dumped all this money into this swampy area and through government funding, and now we have a 1,600-meter airstrip, and they built a little building, a bit of an airport about the size of this building, and they built a firehouse. Everything that was flown in for the airstrip uh, was done by double-blade helicopter. So we praise God because you never, for years, we landed down in the river on a float plane and had to hike to the house through the jungle with our supplies, which took all day. And it, that was in knee-deep mud. And if my wife was here, I would say it if, even if she was here, you never laugh at your wife when she falls in knee-deep mud. I mean, she, every time we would hike through the jungle, she would always fall, bless her heart. So she's excited that we have at least a drier path from the airstrip, the paved airstrip, all the way to the house. So we're very thankful for that. So we praise God for this airstrip. It allows us direct access. Logistics were a nightmare for years because we had to organize the float plane. We had to organize the helicopter. Uh, now we can just fly straight from the capital right to our airstrip. So we praise God for that. We have three organizations that serve for the gospel to get missionaries in and out in Papua. And that's Yajasi, which is the Wycliffe organization called JARS. A lot of you probably heard of that. Helivita, which is the helicopter uh, company out of uh, Switzerland, and MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship, which is, of course, all over the world. Logistics were a nightmare, but now we can just call up Yajasi or MAF, and we can order a plane if the weather's good, and they'll fly right in, uh, pick us up or take us in. You can see here, Zach, before the airstrip, we had to land in another village, wait on the helicopter to come, and do shuttles back and forth, which was a nightmare. So you can see Zach helping us unload our supplies for several months, wait on the helicopter, and then do shuttles. Now we can just take our supplies right into Danawage. And so you can see here, MAF, unloading our supplies for six months, 
And this is one of the most dangerous places to fly in the world. These pilots make, are making a thousand decisions every minute in that aircraft. We get 14 foot of rain per year in this part of the world. And we've had pilots overnight, several nights, because once they've landed, like cars here with Yajasi, as soon as he lands, the weather closes in over the gap, the mountains, and even over Danawage, and he has to spend several nights in Danawage. And so we praise God for such men like this that are, that are, that are risking their lives to get the gospel in and out. I mean, this is not an easy job. I believe pilots need the best of the best. I always tell the pilots in the aircraft, you need the most comfortable bed you can get because of what you deal with throughout the day. So, and then, you know, MAF, when they land sometimes, like our pilot Chris here, you can't see him, but he's right there. Sometimes he's willing to chat for several minutes and, you know, uh, maybe go to the house, get something to drink. Then there's other days where he's, okay, get your stuff out, I gotta go. You know, the gap's closing in over the mountains, and he wants to make it home to his family. So there are those days. But we praise God for such men that can get us in and out for the gospel. I kind of want to. I want to show you a clip of. Uh, I'm in the Gajasi aircraft, a PC6, coming in over Danawage, and this is when the weather's closing in. Uh, we he found a hole to get through uh, at about 5,000 feet and was able to get down over the trees. And so this is kind of the typical rainy season uh, over Danawage. So as soon as you pass that mountain range, it's just flat all the way to the bottom of Papua, just like this. So now we're coming over Nanawage, and he's making his approach. And so we're right over my house now with all the Korowai huts. And so this is the rainy season. A lot of times you don't get in. There's been several times where we've been above Danawage and he says, I can't get in. And he just turns around and heads back to the capital. So we used to have to land on the river behind him that you saw. But now he's got a beautiful paved airstrip. It's the Cadillac of airstrips. Now this airstrip started with the Korowai and the Donnie Evangelist cutting it out by hand. So this is our typical commute to work when we go into the village. So everything you see on the sides, whether it's the dump trucks or the equipment, roofing, buildings, all of those supplies were flown in by double-bladed helicopter. I want to show you this clip. This is in the helicopter. I'm headed to a southern remote village to check on the sick. I had reports of... Uh, uh, respiratory infections and cephalitis 
and uh, which is elephantitis. And so there was a, a lady that couldn't walk due to elephantitis. So we're going down to check on the sick. And uh, I, always, I never go alone. I always take some, one or two people with, with me. Trevor does the same. We usually take our Donnie evangelist with us. And this occasion, Mary Ann's going with me to help me treat the sick. And so this is for us flying over into a southern remote village. This Kordawai village is about 500 people. Uh, they speak a different dialect. But I was thankful I was able to order the helicopter and get down here and check on the sick. As you're flying over the jungle, you'll see clusters of treehouse clans. You'll see a treehouse over here, and another mile you'll see another treehouse. There's still there are still Korowai living in their tree houses that, that don't want to live in villages like this. So, again, we praise God for guys like this. Uh, you know, he, he looks at me and says, you've got one hour on the ground, and I've got to get over the mountains because the weather will close in. So I have one hour to treat this whole village. Uh, and so it's as soon as you hit the ground, it's gather people and let's start treating them because he wants to make it home to his family. So a lot of times you'll have the tribe already coming out to meet. They want to see what's coming, who's coming off the plane, what are they bringing. And then you hit the ground running. The Korowai are about 3,500 to 4,000 people. There's two dialects. There's the northern and then there's the southern. So the Korowai split and it's about the size of Delaware. If you know the state of Delaware. 4,000 people in this area. There's a, there are 25 villages now that have formed over the last few years. The Korowai's first contact was in the late 70s by a Dutch reform missionary. Uh, but they, they went to the south and they were closed off to my area. Until 2000, the Northern Corps did not want anybody coming up into, into the north until around 2002 because they were, used to be headhunted by another southern tribe. So they were very scared, very afraid. So now, by God's providence, he has orchestrated 25 villages along uh, two main rivers to where we can access that by boat and go and minister, preach, teach, check on the sick. And it's very strategic to go up and down the river by boat now and go to these different villages. This, this little clip here is a, a new village that formed two hours north of my village. It's called Kanonsatu, and it's uh, it formed by four families that split off from another village due to a war. And so they're having a sago grub feast. And the Korowai, main staple diet, you can see this lady right here, is a sago bread from a sago palm with sago grub worms. They fry it up and eat it. Would you like to try that? <laughs> and so they're going to do this here. They're going to have their sago grub feast. And so we were able to get to this. Uh, multiple clans, hundreds of people are going to come. And so while we're waiting for all these clans to come, we always start with medical, checking on the sick. And it's my turn to teach. So once we teach and eat, I mean, once we check on the sick and eat, I'm going to teach, and I believe I taught from Genesis 
2 and 3, the doctrine of sin, and the fall of, excuse me, the fall of Adam and Eve. And then I went through salvation history. So these, a lot of these people are still in the tree houses. And a lot of these I hadn't met before. They're just so scattered. And so it was a good opportunity to do medical and teach. And so we're waiting. And this is, this is the typical Korowai entrance. So here's one clan coming in for the party. This is passed down from generation to generation. It's a left-right sway. Uh, it's from the Kakua uh, dance, from their oral tradition. They always carry their machetes, bows and arrows, and now they have pellet guns that they give from the outside world. So we're waiting on all these clans to arrive and we're checking the sick and uh, while we're waiting for the sick, this man comes out. I have met him before. Uh, he came to the festivities. He had a respiratory infection. Uh, he had never uh, been in a village uh, like this. He always stays with his clan and his treehouse. And so I was able to, now that I can speak Korowai to him, I was able to explain or talk to him uh, a little bit. And hopefully he understood what I was explaining about the gospel. But he was able to hear those stories in his own language. And uh, we treated him. I, I don't know if he's still alive. Uh, I hope to find him when I get back. Maybe spend some more time with him. Uh, but you can pray for him. Yawop here. He is, he is the oldest man in my village. For years he was a, um, he was a thorn in our flesh. Kind of like Paul describes his thorns. He was, he was very, very uh, agitated all the time. He would come into the church service as we were teaching, painted in his animistic ash, and he would lay down or he would walk around in his animistic ash trying to disrupt the service. Uh, he would come around our house threaten uh, Trevor and I uh, with his bows and arrows and his machete. You'd wake up at 12 midnight, him beating his wife. Uh, you'd hear him in the village screaming. For years this went on when we first got there. And in 2000, the mid part of 17, something changed in Yahweh. Something changed in him. Now, I don't know if he's a believer because he's heard for a long time we've taught salvation history. He's heard it. I don't know if he's repented and believed, but the something happened to him and now he is not doing coming in and disrupting the service anymore. He sits there and listens. He's not beating his wife. He's actually carrying his daughter and seems like he's helping his wife. He doesn't threaten anymore. He's not agitated anymore. He's at my house every morning at 5 a.m. trying to wake me up, blowing snot out of his nose. I mean, every morning. But there's something different about him now. He, he's changed. So pray for Yahweh. I, 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 he knows the gospel, but I, I don't know. He's, he will not confess that he believes. So please pray for Yahweh. This is the typical Korowai woman with her child, the charms that they used to wear in our village to ward off evil spirits and to ward off sickness. Uh, malaria was the big thing for them. 
And of course, it doesn't work. You know, we would shoot them up with penicillin and teach them that this, this has no effect. Um, and so, right, since, since we've entered in 2011, we've seen this decrease. We don't see the women and children wearing these anymore. You only see that outside the village. So what the Korowai are doing now, and this is very interesting, they are taking inside the village, they have this belief that the God of the missionary exists inside the village. When they step outside those bounds, it's back to their evil spirits. And so we're trying to teach them that there is this one triune God that is overall, He's everywhere, He's in control of all, not just with inside the village. And so please pray for that worldview that they have. Uh, we've been trying to teach on that. They were coined, the National Geographic coined the phrase the treehouse people in the late 90s. Several documentaries, you, you know, you can go on YouTube and just search Korowai for hours. I mean, there's so many documentaries, so many videos. They've had a lot of national attention through Europe and Australia and uh, Canada. Uh, I don't know about so much about the U.S. I haven't seen that much. But these people uh, build their treehouses 8 to 10 meters off the ground. And they'll rub pig fat and fish fat at the top of the entrance of the treehouse to ward off the evil spirits. They're, they believe that witches still roam the jungle floor, called the kakua. And so they try to ward off those evil spirits. They still believe a flood is coming in their worldview, passed down by generation. So it's believed that they make their treehouses because of those two things. This is... Uh, Akalina with her son Omison, and this is what the typical scene for a woman and, and her children during the day. They're out in the jungle near a water source making their sago bread. So I went down and I, I got Akalina to show me some things and allowed some pictures so I could take back and show you. Uh, this is what they're doing during the day while the husband's off doing something else. They'll take the sago palm tree that's been cut down. Uh, they'll let it rot for several weeks, then they'll come back, open it up. And then they will uh, bust out all the inside uh, root of it, or the inside uh, trunk, until it becomes a white, powdery, yeah, uh, dust almost. They'll take that dust, and then they'll mix it in a trough with water, and weed it out, the dirt, and then they'll have this huge pink paste, which is the sago bread. They'll take that home, they'll cut it up, put it over the fire, and then they'll eat it. And they'll mix all sorts of stuff with it. That's the staple diet for the Korowai people. And since there's been villages formed, you know, this is the typical scene in a village. You know, uh, a mom is usually with her children because the father's off in the jungle somewhere. Uh, children are, are taught at a very young age to make bows and arrows, to start learning how to hunt. And since we brought in soap and different types of hygiene stuff for their health, uh, we've taught them to bathe down at the river. So a lot of the times during the day, the, 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 the mother will be down with her children uh, if they have soap, and they'll be bathing in the river. And so uh, when we first entered, it was about 95% skin disease, and now it's less than 5% in our village. And if they're not lazy, then they can have good skin. This is also another man. His name is Peter. Now that's not his Korowai name. That was given to him. Peter was also for many years a thorn in our flesh. He was also one of those uh, just really angry men, very threatening, always, uh, you know, always beating his children, his wife. I mean, it seemed like every day we were policing. 
And at one point I looked at Trevor and I said, I didn't come here to be a policeman. You know, I came here to teach the Bible, but it seems like all we're doing is just breaking up fights or dealing with these kind of men. And it got to the point where it became very, very um, often to where I just, I didn't want to deal with it anymore. But this man, Peter, he changed also. He stopped beating his wife. I mean, there would be multitude, multiple times at night, one, two in the morning. You get up and you go out there, they're screaming and hollering because they get right behind my house. And I'd say, be quiet, I'm trying to sleep. He's locked himself in his house with his wife, with bows and arrows, won't let me in, uh, beating his wife. And I said, Peter, you need to stop this or I'm going to break the door down. You can't beat your wife. And you can't hold your son by his foot and beat him over the head with a stick. You can't do those kind of things. But something changed in Peter in 2018. He stopped beating his wife and he stopped beating his children like that. He was quiet and he heard nothing from him. Again, I don't know his heart, if he's truly converted, but he has changed. So pray for Peter. That's the kind, you know, folks, when the gospel enters an area like this, it changes everything. It changes everything. And that's not just there, it's Oklahoma. When the gospel enters an area, a neighborhood, or a village, it changes everything. And so I praise God that these men are, for the most part, at least, their character's changing, and I pray that they're truly repentant and following Jesus. He comes to church now. He listens every week when we do the Bible teaching. This is the typical Korowai woman in the afternoon. They love to come to the yard. We have games. You know, we had a little small store. They could trade for stuff, salt, noodles, and soap, and some clothes. Uh, So this is the typical scene you see in the village in the afternoon with a a lady sitting in the yard with her children. Uh, And, of course, now that we have 25 villages, you know, you you still see a lot of the Sometimes you'll see people coming out of the tree houses into the village, like this uh, family here. You know, they, they, sometimes they come out of the tree house into the village to trade for batteries. So they like their flashlights. Now one of the Korowai beliefs is their Sago Grub Feast. They practice this. Uh, we've tried to get to multiple of these. It's, it definitely happens at least two or three times a year. Uh, it's in their worldview. They have a, a sacred fence that they erect, and uh, this is to offer their food to the evil spirit. His name is Sight. And so they'll do this multiple times a year. They'll offer, you can see, they've laid their sago bread on this sacred altar. And you can see down there, they even throw some pineapples, whatever they have, fish, jungle vegetables, you name it, some pig meat, they'll throw it on this sacred fence. Now, for two weeks before the festivities, this is guarded by a man, uh, and he's guarding this, walking in his own footsteps, and guarding the sacred fire for two weeks. He's not allowed to touch a woman, and he speaks in different taboos. It's, it's very demonic. And so this still happens even 2019. And so this one, we found out this was happening downriver, and we tried to get, they usually don't want us there, but we said we want to come. So we went, and my language helper was able to stand up here at this sacred fence and preach the gospel. And on the way back, we were receiving threats. So they were not happy. Uh, they usually don't like taking photos. They don't like you to be involved. But this still happens even in the midst of so much teaching and trying to saturate these villages and these clans with the gospel, still practicing some of their animistic views. And a lot of these guys that still go to this claim to be believers. One guy stood on the front porch 
of Trevor's, and we said, we want to get to this Sago Grub Feast. And he said, and he said, well, you can't go. And I said, well, why are you going? I said, you, you know, you come to the worship services, you know, you claim to love Jesus. And he said, well, if Satan calls me, I have to go. That's what he said. So there's this, there's this separation there that still exists that we're trying to teach uh, to forsake all of this animistic belief. And so you can pray for that. They believe, they fear demons and believe in death-eating witches. Uh, they rub pig fat and fish fat on the door frames and they use charms to appease the demons. Uh, you know, they'll cover the holes. If they dig a hole, they'll cover it with banana leaves so the demons won't escape. And so you'll see this throughout tree houses hanging their fish, their rat, their pig heads. Uh, and when that fat is dissolved, they believe that their evil spirit is pleased. And it's, it's, uh, it's for success, it's for fertility that they do those kind of things. It's so that their clan will uh, have a ton of sago trees. So that's why they do it. This ministry couldn't happen without hiking, canoeing, or climbing. That's, that's, how, that's my commute to work through the jungle. And a lot of times you meet things on the trail that you don't like, like this death adder. I never go alone. I always have a Korowai in front of me because I can't see the snakes like they can. And so praise the Lord, before I stepped on it, he was able to cut the death adder up. I didn't see it. Uh, but for years, we had to take out, we had to take dugout canoes. And so it took us all day to get to one village. And then we'd have to come back the next day. Now, since we have uh, a week down river, there's this little place that makes boats. And so we buy these boats with little engines now. We can head down river now and, and hit two or three villages a day, teaching and checking on the sick. And so this is, this is my commute to work. Not a bad commute either, is it? Uh, no cars, no noise, just, just the river and you and the Korowai. I never go anywhere alone. I always take uh, the evangelist with me and the chorus. So you can see here. Yus Weya, he's a Donnie evangelist that works with me. And then a couple Korowai and his wife. We always hike together. Here's a typical commute for me on Saturday mornings. I am in another village now. I live in Danawage, as you've seen from my updates. But I am commuting to another village on Saturday mornings. I spend the night and I get up and I teach on Sundays, uh, Salvation History. And then I check on the sick. We eat together, and then that afternoon I'm headed home. This is my typical commute to work on Saturday. So you can see how the river will rise just in a matter of hours. All that log debris pushed up. It's, it can be very dangerous at times. Uh, the river's down, but just enough to where I don't have to hike it so we can take the boat. Fourteen foot of rain a year, this river can rise just within a matter of an hour, three or four feet. And if it's low, I have to hike an hour and a half, whereas I can take a 30-minute boat ride. So it's, it's kind of nice to feel like you're in the Cadillac once you don't have to hike for once in a while, <laughs> especially now that I'm getting older. If the river's too low and we're in the dry season, this is the typical scene for hiking. So this is, uh, this is six o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning. So I decided to wait till Sunday morning to hike. Hiking with the Donnie Evangelist with Tinus. 
so I ran into a spider, so we had to stop, had to get it off. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but Wittinus, he always goes with me. If Yus is not around, uh, he lost his wife and child uh, in 2014 in childbirth. We buried them in the village. And he said, I'm not leaving. This is my post. I want to teach the people. So he's a hearty guy and loves the Lord and wants to teach the people. And so he's taking off his shoes now that they have shoes that, to keep them as dry as possible. So an hour and a half, we get to chit-chat all the way. And once we arrive, you're soaking wet with sweat. So you have to uh, change, get ready for the service. You're tired. Sometimes you don't feel like standing up teaching. But... They're already gathered, so you have to get up whether you're tired or not, whether you're hungry, thirsty. And so this is the typical commute to work on the weekend if the river's low. Medical care is huge. You know, once you step foot off the, the plane, you're a doctor. Uh, we've had training here and there. Uh, I don't see, according to the, the New Testament, I don't see any dichotomy in the New Testament between uh, good works and good words. Jesus, according to these texts, everywhere he went to the cities and outlying towns, he was preaching the kingdom of God and healing the sick. So we take that same motto. We teach the kingdom of God and we treat the sick. Um, and a lot of times, one shot of penicillin, you see an automatic uh, result the next day. It's things, the infections are starting to dry up. So medical care is huge. Treating a lady for elephantitis that I medevaced out from that village. She stayed at our place for three weeks and we treated her. Um, she was able to go back home, but she'll live with that for the rest of her life. It was just too far advanced. Trish did a lot of uh, compressions for her and different salt baths. Uh, Trish is always checking, treating children for respiratory infections, malnourishment. Uh, that's just rampant across the Korowai. Uh, you're always dealing, putting in IVs with people dehydrated, uh, including yourself sometimes. We average about 12 medevacs a year. Please forgive the photos, but I, I did want to show you what we deal with so you, that you can pray. Um, we, we, yeah, when we order the helicopter, usually we've had, last year we had 12 medevacs. Uh, this man, uh, several years ago, he had uh, one cut on his foot. And this is what turned into, due to the conditions in the jungle, this is what it turned into. So he lived his life over the fire. Trevor was able to have, send him out and have his leg amputated, and he's doing well. Uh, you see Putra here? He became the poster child for the Korowai through all of Indonesia. National attention because he came to our village at 10 o'clock at night, a 12-hour hike. His dad carried him to the house, and he had a hole in his cheek. It was rotting flesh. You could see his jawbone. And so uh, Trevor medevaced him out to the hospital, and they were able to treat him for many months. He stayed there. Uh, an elderly Korowai woman uh, treating her gave her a measles vaccine, but come to find out she, had, um, she was blind with uh, cataracts, and she had several tumors. Her family begged me to take her out, but I said she won't get treatment. It's just too far advanced. It, it's better that we make her as comfortable as possible here. And so um, hopefully, you know, when we get back, we can, maybe she's still alive. I don't know. Uh, but you see these kind of things. You wake up out of bed every morning and you pray, Lord, what am I going to face today? Give me the strength to do this. Um, 12 midnight, pig attacks, 
Trish treating uh, Josiah there. Abraham, uh, this is up at the airstrip. Over, this was a fight over food uh, between a Donnie man and a Korowai man. And so uh, they were, felt like they were being cheated over food, over rice. So Abraham, with his temper, he threw an axe and hit the guy in the head in the temple. And uh, the son of the man that was hit grabbed his machete and went to cut his head off, but missed and cut his shoulder. So we met back those two guys out. And they're both doing well now. Uh, the man that got hit in the head was not, was not killed. Uh, Trish and I treating Kessia here. She confessed to her husband that she committed adultery four times. And uh, he got mad and threw a stick out of the fire, hit her in the eye, and burned her cornea. And so we're treating her there. Uh, then you see Onus here. Uh, he had rectal prolapse due to two stages of malaria. So I ordered the helicopter, flew to his village, was able to try to help him, couldn't help him there, so we medevaced him out. Medical is huge in this type of ministry. It looks different in other settings, but in this jungle environment, it's huge. We're always given, we were given permission by the Indonesian government to do vaccines, and you just never know what you're going to see. Some of those things you can't diagnose, and so you have to send them out. And this, the, the core, I believe that uh, a woman gives birth over a hole, and she lines it with banana leaves, and she'll cover the hole until she's ready to give birth so that the demons won't escape. So Trish went to check on uh, Yosina, and her family's there. They'll go out in the jungle, and they'll build a little structure, and she'll give birth in that hole. Uh, of course, this family still practices their animistic beliefs, and uh, the father um, is still hard into that, and uh, two of their children have died due to that. Death rate's high. I think this has gone up since medicals, since we've entered and now we have different medical care. That might be a little different. I think that might be in the 50s now, maybe. Uh, but we're always, uh, we're always doing funeral services, uh, at least uh, several every six months, uh, two or three, really. Here's a typical scene for a... a the Korowai didn't have a belief to bury their dead, so this was taught by the evangelists, the Donny guys that we work with. For, for sake of diseases and to get, get your, put your, bury your dead in the ground and then we'll have a funeral and we can preach. So it's my turn. Uh, they asked me to preach at this one. I didn't know that she had died. I just hear a bunch of hollering. So I ran up there and he says, grab your Bible, you're teaching. So I, so I spoke from um, John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what the typical scene for... teach from John 14, 6, and uh, preach the gospel. And that's the goal of every funeral, is just to present the gospel to people without hope. Good news, not so depressing, good news is there. We have now, I've trained Waihu to do extractions. He's serving his people. This is my translator, helper as well. So now he's pulling out teeth 
Uh, and so we've done 12 extractions last year, and that's through the medical care through iTech, through Steve Saint's ministry. Got the chair and all the equipment, and so we built a little room, and we do that now to he can serve his people. We work with these Donnie evangelists. They're also Heart Cry supported, Heart Cry missionaries. Use, I'm with him most of the time, day in and day out. He's a great guy, big teddy bear, loves the Lord. He wants to serve, wants to learn how to teach, and so I spend most of my time with him. For sake of time, I'm not going to show you, but it's his turn to preach, and uh, we take turns, and then we go through the week, and we just discuss it, give him helps, and just help him to prepare so he can effectively teach the Koroi people. Also work with Jimmy and Perrin, which have been there in the beginning before I was there. Uh, Jimmy and Perrin are just such jewels, uh, good people, love the Lord, and they have such a gift to teach the children, and now Jimmy is overseeing the church and doing a lot of the teaching in Danawage. We're trying to, we're not content just to be the ones to do that. We want to see these men, uh, and eventually, then the Korowai, once we have believers that are mature enough to teach. Wittinus loves to learn, loves to read. He lost his wife and child, I told you a minute ago, and, but he's staying, and he wants to continue teaching the people. Um, just very hearty people. These are Donnie Highland Christians that we're working with. We have a school now. Uh, we started in 2014, and now we've invited this organization called Lantern of Hope from the capital of Indonesia, Jakarta. We have uh, four teachers now, and you can see at the bottom in our house, a lot of times we'll have uh, meals and games with them. Uh, so we have four teachers and about 55 children, uh, depending on each year, when some go away or some come in. Uh, but this is our school compound, the school, the teacher's dormitory, uh, their gardens, chicken house, and other other married couple dorm. So we praise God for this. This was only happened out of, out of supporters like you that have given to this. We were able to build this. The Northern Corwai Translation Project is completed. This was a three and a half year project that I started with uh, my translators. So I went through Genesis to Revelation. I translated uh, salvation history in catechism form. And it's, it's, uh, it really took almost four years due to some sickness but uh, it's being published now as we speak, and my goal is to buy 300 recorders, solar recorders for the Korai people, give them to them for free, pass those out when I get back, and I want to put this translation of the gospel salvation history on each one and just give them to them so they can listen to them in their homes or when they hike through the jungle. So that's the goal. I, have, I think I have most of that raised for the 300. That's the initial. In the future, I want to get another several hundred because the Northern Korowai are definitely at least 1,500 to 2,000 people. So this is a success. I mean, this, this is laboring. Many days I would struggle over one word and go, this is just not working. And I would, just, I would be so discouraged. But by God's sovereignty and His grace, he, he allowed us to finish this translation. And so I praise God for that. So it's in catechism question and answer form. So I'm very thankful that's exciting to see that finally be completed. Our first literacy books are being done now. I have one. Uh, the other, the next three are in print now. We're going to do a series of 12 literacy books for the Korowai. I want to teach literacy when I get back because they can't read their language. Uh, since I've developed it, I'm going to teach them how to read it and so that they can uh, teach it themselves and read it themselves since now there's translations being done. So I'm very thankful for that. 
And Trish, she just does an amazing job with the people as well. We have fun. Everything's not depressive a lot of times. You know, a lot of times you see sickness and uh, fights, but a lot of times we have, we have good times with the people. So we have film night, and Trish is making food. And, of course, the children are there hours early, screaming and hollering. They're so excited. They're waiting for the film and, and food. So it's a good time to have all the people come to your house. We still do the worship and teaching. We're teaching seven Korowai men. Uh, let me. Here are the believers, at least five of the seven or eight that we have. And these men are taking turns preaching in a village every Sunday. So we taught them for three years salvation history. And we're going to continue that teaching when we return. So we use the story picture books everywhere we go because it, it, they're oral culture, they're visual since they can't read. So it's very effective for them to memorize the stories. And when they see a picture, they know from past teaching, oh, I know what this story is about. So it helps them remember. So pray for that as we continue the teaching for these Korowai believers. That's our goal. If you want to know our goal, it's to see Korowai believers leading Korowai believers. I I don't want to be content standing up there. I want to be on the backs, in the sidelines, in the backdrop eventually. I I do not want to be up front. So please pray for these guys. That's that's the future of the Korowai right there. I'm going to stop. I wanted to show you more, but it's late. So... I'll close with that quote, and you've seen that before. If a commission of an earthly king is considered an honor, why would we consider the commission of a heavenly king a sacrifice? Many men and women are are quick to herald a message for an earthly president, an earthly prime minister, an earthly prince, an earthly king. What about a heavenly king? Is that an honor or is that a sacrifice? So I praise God that he uses Northwest. I mean, this 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 is a joint gospel. This is... An engaging gospel. This is not a solo effort. You are, you are the arm, that extension in the Korowai through your efforts here. So I praise God for that. So I couldn't do this. Um, we're in this together. So praise God and for this ministry for the past seven years. And thank you for your faithfulness throughout these years. Thank you. You may close in prayer. Okay. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time I've had to report this work, and I thank you for this dear people here. Uh, I pray that you would continue to, uh, as Colossians 1 says, bless them with all spiritual wisdom. And uh, I pray that you would just continue to sanctify us through your word and continue to use us as you see fit uh, to glorify your name. And I thank you for... um, I thank you for the Korowai people. I pray that you would continue to work in these villages. And I pray that you would continue to keep them from the evil one. I pray for Trevor that you would bless him, heal his body, so that we could return. And I pray now for this hour coming up that we would worship you in spirit and truth. And that your word would go forth and that you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.